Are you tired of the Jesus your pastor preaches about? Tired of singing to a God you just can't get behind? Thinking of ditching that old, outdated understanding of who the Lord actually is? Just tell those guys, no, nope, definitely not. Breathe easy by saying no to the actual Jesus and yes to infomercial Jesus. Just picture how you want your own infomercial Jesus to look, act, and sound. For the small price of your eternity, you can have the Jesus you really want. Infomercial Jesus can ignore your questionable internet history, strained relationship with your coworker, and foul-mouthed road rage while supporting the way you live, speak, and vote. Feeling convicted while reading the Bible? Well, don't worry. Remember, Infomercial Jesus doesn't bring conviction, only celebration while you turn away from your problems. Because with Infomercial Jesus, you don't have to change a thing. I love our creative team. Eric Trace. Hey, good morning, guys. How are we feeling today? How's everybody doing? Beautiful fall morning out there. Thank you so much for being in here with us, though. We're excited to have you. Um, I do want to just uh, reiterate something that Josiah said, that we have over 100 men up in the mountains right now, which is incredible. Can we just give it up for that alone? I got to be up there for Friday and most of the day yesterday. Uh, Tyler and I drove back late last night. But um, man, God is already moving in incredible ways in the lives and hearts of those men. And I wanna just have a pastoral moment really quick with any of you wives in here right now that still have your husband um, up there and he's gonna be coming back today. I've done this long enough to know that there is an opportunity for the enemy to come in and cause some disunity and some division. Oftentimes what happens when guys, or, or if it was the opposite, it works the same way as well. But right now we're talking about the men coming back where they'll come back and they're gonna be fired up in their faith. Hopefully they're gonna be fired up about their faith, but you've been watching the kids for the last few days, right? And you're like, hey, here you are, I'm going to get my nails done. Like, I get it, like we, we get that. But here's a suggestion I would love to, for you to consider. Um, instead of just allowing him to feel all the tension that you felt over the last few days, will you just ask one question first and be very sincere in this question. Hey, how did God use the last three days in your life? Just ask that question, be sincere, be ready to, to listen to whatever his response is. And um, that will probably help defend off some of the tactics of our enemy that want to come in and just uh, honestly just wanna remove whatever God is trying and attempting to do in the life of your husband, okay? So uh, one question, that's it. Hey, how did God use the last three days in your life? Um, and if he says nothing happened, you need to go back. Like, like go back until something, no, don't do that. But yeah, there you go. So we are uh, incredibly excited for you to be here today. I want to let you know that uh, last week I communicated something that I needed to change because last week I communicated that uh, I was doing a vision message and how there was going to be two parts to it. So last week was the first part and this week was going to be the second part. Well, I thought we were going to be able to transmit this sermon I'm, I'm preaching this morning to the guys up at Camp Como and we learned that their technology wasn't up to date enough for that to happen. And I want all of us to hear it together. And so I'm gonna hold off on that until next week, the second part of that vision message. And so if you're just hearing this for the first time and you weren't here last week, I would encourage you, please go back and listen to that message uh, before you listen to my sermon next week. Deal, deal, fair, okay. Well, today we are continuing, actually we're concluding uh, this series called Infomercial Jesus. And if you weren't here to kind of hear the, the background and the big idea behind why we are doing this, I'll catch you up really quick. 
you've seen an infomercial, right? You've seen an infomercial and you see how the longer those infomercials go, the more that they start to make adjustments and they start to critique their pitch to you because they're trying to figure out if there's a different way they can say things, if there's a different way that they can sell the product that they're trying to get you to buy. And so they're kind of exercising whatever they have, you know, the ability they have to exercise so that you would maybe hear something differently. And all of a sudden it starts to appeal to your unique tastes. Uh, and then it starts to appeal to your unique style or the fact that you love a good deal. And it's like, buy now in the next 30 minutes and we'll double the offer or we'll throw in, an, uh, you know, we'll throw in this free gift. And again, what they're trying to do is they're trying to appeal to your unique tastes, maybe your unique style, maybe your comforts. Unfortunately, this is what we've started to do with Jesus. And what happens is we start to treat Jesus like a buffet line. And we discard the things that we don't like and we take the things that we do like and then all of a sudden it's like, there, there's, there's my own little fashioned Jesus that I have made in my image that will fit my unique tastes and styles and comforts. But unfortunately, J Jesus never gave us that option. But if there are options, that means people can go shopping, correct? And so that's what people start to do. They don't like different aspects of Jesus. <clears throat> maybe something that he says particularly, or maybe, maybe something a, a specific church uh, stands for that is directly related to the words of Jesus, the red letters of the Bible, and you don't like that, and so you start shopping. And if this Jesus doesn't fit your style, don't worry, you can keep shopping, and you can find a Jesus that doesn't challenge your worldview or the friend group that you like to keep, or if that doesn't work, you can keep shopping and maybe you'll find a Jesus that works for your generation. Because I mean, in your generation, you're passionate and you're, you're really excited about these things. And so you need to find the Jesus that's excited about those same things. And if you don't find them, then you just keep shopping. And the longer that you shop, the greater the chance that you'll end up finding a cheap, fictional, false Jesus that wasn't made in the image of God, but was made in your image or someone else's. And these cheap imitations might get some aspects of Jesus right, but again, he's not a buffet line. You can't just get some of him right. His invitation has always been, you can either have all of me or you can have none of me, but there was never an option to change me. There's only one real Jesus. And if I can just take a moment and just settle on that, he is real, <laughs> he's real. There's only one real Jesus and he's inviting you to follow him, but never gave you the option to change him. Now, unfortunately, some of these false imitations of Jesus have grown in popularity over the years. And I know by you showing up here this morning that you're devoted just like I am to wanna to follow the one true Jesus. And so <clears throat> maybe it would be a good exercise for us, not even just this morning, but throughout the journey of our faith to dismantle these other false imitations of Jesus that are trying to steal people's devotion and worship. And so for our time today, I wanna to focus on what I'm calling enemy-centric Jesus. And if you're not exactly sure what I mean by that, don't worry, it'll make complete sense in just a few moments. And here's where I would start. I would make the argument that as a culture, we have really lowered the bar when it comes to what it means to stand on your convictions. I mean, if you think about it, usually when someone is standing firm in their convictions, it illuminates what they're for, 
But you've seen this, and you've seen this played out in our society and in culture and even in church. It is so much easier to talk about what we're against than it is to talk about what we're for. And then I would replace the word what potentially with the word who. It's easier to have an enemy, a who, that we can target to throw our insults at, to express all of our frustrations at, to at times even throw spears at, choosing our words very carefully because we know those are the words that will cut. It's easier, honestly, guys, it is. It's easier to have an enemy, a target, where we can push our hostility and at times even hatred for. But that's not the way of Jesus. It's never been the way of Jesus. It's a false imitation of Jesus. We don't worship an enemy-centric Jesus. Let me illustrate it this way. Many of you have probably noticed that the political commercials are coming back on scene pretty hot and heavy right now, right? And if you're paying any attention, you'll see that it, almost every commercial now is aimed at the opposing candidate being not just a problem, but the enemy. And so instead of spending their donor dollars on how they can actually make a difference and the, and the help that they wanna bring and the remedies they can bring to, to the bigger problems in a, in a state or a city or even our nation, instead of doing that, they spend those donor dollars on just digging up dirt on the other candidate. Did you know that candidate such and such used to throw spit wads when he was in fourth grade in math class? And would you really wanna vote for a guy like that? And I'm like, yeah, I probably would actually, but. <laughs> And unfortunately, what happens is this doesn't stop in politics. It's found its way into the church. And instead of talking about not just what we are for, but listen to me, who we are for, we've allowed this spirit at times of demonizing and dehumanizing those people, whoever those people are. And instead of following the one true Jesus, we end up following enemy-centric Jesus. And instead of standing firm in our convictions, we have found that it's just a lot easier to have an enemy that we can have a target to hurl our insults at, our hostility at, and unfortunately at times even hatred. This is enemy-centric Christianity. Have you ever thought about this, that when we make someone the target of our frustrations, of our hostility, and again at times even hatred, is it possible for us in the same moment to actually represent the love of God? To which I'd say it's not common sense, right? I mean, if somebody has become the enemy that we're just throwing spears at, it's gonna be next to impossible to also show them and represent the love that God has clearly asked us to demonstrate. And again, we, we are created in the image of God. We are all image bearers of God. And one of the greatest ways that we can actually reflect the image of our heavenly father is to resent, uh, represent what he said he was, which is love. And so if we make somebody the enemy, enemy, if we're following enemy-centric Christianity, enemy-centric Jesus, it's impossible to reflect and be the image bearer of our Heavenly Father at the same time spewing hatred and hostility. That's a conflict. And unfortunately, what we fail to realize at times is we have an outside unbelieving world watching this transpire. And they're thinking to themselves, hey, is it your main message that God is love? Where is the love? You see, when you ascribe to an enemy-centric or Christianity even, it's really hard to show love to those who you're demonizing and dehumanizing at the same time. I mean, just think about, think about over the last couple of years. And I, this is not a political sermon, but you can definitely use how politics unfolded in the last election to see this very clearly. 
I mean, think about the toxic posts that were put online. The people yelling, specifically Christians yelling at the top of their lungs, you're the problem. Go back to where you came from. Why are you here in the first place? You're what's everything that's wrong with this country. And by the way, by the way, God loves you. It doesn't work, does it? See, enemy-centric Christianity works against the very fabric that our faith is supposed to be built on. Maybe this is why Jesus chose to speak on this subject so clearly and so candidly in Matthew chapter five, which is the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard that it was said. In other words, it used to be a certain way, but now it's gonna be a different way. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. Can we just sit on that last statement really quick? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. We're supposed to be image bearers of our Father in heaven. One of the greatest ways we can do that is by showing people a different perspective. Now, some of you, when you hear this, and I would be, I'd be in the same club as you if you feel this way, it just sounds too passive. This sounds like we're supposed to roll over and just allow people to walk all over us. And I don't think this is what Jesus is saying at all. And when you start studying the context, particularly of this text, you'll learn that Jesus is not talking about passivity. What he's doing is he's trying to help you to see that depending on how you respond to when people are dishonoring you, you have the ability to change their perspective. Let me, let me unfold this for you a little bit. When a Roman soldier came and said, uh, and this was a part of the law, the Roman Empire was incredibly corrupt, right? And so if a Roman soldier came up to you and said, hey, carry my gear, it was a part of the law that you had to carry his gear for one mile. And Jesus says, man, go ahead and go a second mile. And what that will do is that will show dishonor to the fact that he asked you to do that in the first place. It wasn't uncommon for somebody in power to smack somebody with the back of their hand. It usually wasn't an open hand. It wasn't uncommon, again, maybe a Roman centurion or a soldier or somebody in power, if they thought you did something that was disrespectful, they'd, they'd smack you, just backhand. And at that point, as you imagine, if you were to see this take place, what's gonna happen? Everybody around you is gonna look. And so as everybody around you is looking as you just got slapped and dishonored, turn the other cheek as well and put that dishonor back on him. This has nothing to do with just rolling over and letting somebody you know, pummel you to death. Never, this was never the context. And so what Jesus is trying to help us to see and understand is, guys, this is not about passivity. This is about doing things in a certain way that would bring the dishonor off of you back to someone else and you'll change their perspective. Many years ago, I had a pastor of mine who was telling a story to us about when he lived in Haiti. He was a um, missionary in Haiti for three years. And while he lived down there, um, there was a young lady that was a part of the same mission that he was. And it was a young American girl. 
And one night, a Haitian man attacked her and attempted to rape her. And lucky, lucky and thankfully, she was able to fight him off and run away, and uh, the man was later captured and put in prison for a few years. Well, he tells the story that one day this young lady, they were going to church together, and they went up to church, and she's welcoming people in this little Haitian church, this little white building, you know, and she sees, again, a couple years have gone by now, and she sees this man, he's been let out of prison. She sees this man walking. He's not walking towards the church, but she sees him and she knows it's her attacker. And immediately, as you can imagine, a lot of emotions start to come over her and the trauma that happened to her in that event, it starts to surface and everything in her wants to run, just run inside the church. But the Holy Spirit started to convict her. Hey, I want you to go invite this man to church today. (laughs) No, 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 that's not you, God. That's my mind's playing tricks on me. No, 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 you wouldn't. God, you would never ask me to do something like that. No, I want, I want you to go invite this man to church today. And it became very clear to her it's exactly what she was supposed to do. So she ran to catch him really quick and tapped him on the shoulder. And, you know, I just remember him telling the story. This guy's shocked because he knew who she was. And she said, I don't know why you did what you did, but I want to let you know that I forgive you. And God will forgive you too. And I want you to come to church with me today. And he did. And he allowed Jesus to become his Lord and Savior on that very day, became a part of that mission. It's an incredible story of radical forgiveness. And I wonder if you've probably heard something similar, a radical story of forgiveness that honestly, when you heard it, you thought, you didn't have to do that. (laughs) You didn't need to do that. Like that's, you had every reason to hold hostility against that person. Maybe you've seen the stories of people that have had their children murdered every reason to have vengeance in them and anger and want to put that person on death row, whatever, you know. But then you hear this story of radical forgiveness unfold and this person goes to prison and lets this murderer know, took their child away from them, hey, I'll forgive you and God will too. Why is it that radical stories of forgiveness have a way of penetrating our heart and soul in a very unique way? I would tell you when I hear these stories, sometimes I have to be honest and say, I don't know if I'm there. But other times when I'm listening to these things unfold, it's very convicting. It's almost as if if it's a path of like, this is what I'm calling you to, Aaron. This is is what I would want from you, Aaron. And again, I I may have to admit, I don't know if I'm there. And I wonder if the reason why those things are so appealing to us and so convicting to us, specifically those radical stories of forgiveness, is because in those moments, we are seeing a more clear image of Jesus. In those moments of radical forgiveness, we're actually seeing what Jesus himself did do and would do. And listen to me, it changes our perspective. When you see somebody behave in a way and you really are giving them the freedom to act the other way, but something, something's different, It convicts us, it draws us in, and it makes us think to ourselves, maybe I need to change. And I imagine that there's an outside unbelieving world that has seen those radical stories of forgiveness, and it's those very moments that that make them reconsider how they've been viewing God, and it changes their perspective. This is exactly what Jesus is calling us to do. You may have every right to make that person your enemy. You may have every right to, or at least you think, to 
make them the target of your hostility and potentially even hatred. Or you can follow the instructions that I've given you and potentially change people's perspective of their father in heaven because nobody would have expected that. It's not about passivity, friends. It's about changing a lost and broken world's perspective. And listen, you and I have done enough life to know that there are a lot of really false and bad and unhealthy perspectives of God, right? And unfortunately, those unhealthy perspectives of who God is have come because of observations of Christians. And again, I would just encourage you, look, you don't have to look any further than this last political year and the type of things that people were posting and saying and the venom that was being spewed. I want you to think about it this way too. God says that we were once his enemies. Do you know that? God says that we were once his enemies. And so if we were once his enemies, how did God treat us as his enemies? Did he retaliate? Did he come after us because we were labeled enemies of God? Well, Paul makes it pretty clear in Romans chapter five. He says, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled while we were enemies of God, shall we be saved through his life? You see, enemy-centric Christianity isn't focused on reconciliation. It's focused on retaliation. And so when we react to situations and people and circumstances, in a certain way, we need to be really clear about this, that our reactions speak louder than words. Our reactions speak a lot louder than our words. And ultimately, this is what it comes down to today. And if nothing else, I would tell you, this is the takeaway. This is what I want you to wrestle with. We either believe that God will do what he said he's going to do, or we won't. And if we believe that God will do what he said he's going to do, then we will move more in the direction of reconciliation. If we don't believe what God will do, what he said he's going to do, we will move more in the direction of retaliation. So what did God say? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Romans chapter 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And again, it's this idea of maybe the dishonor was heading in your direction, but because you were willing to follow the way of Jesus, you're going to turn that dishonor in the other direction. Do not overcome, do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, some of you might be struggling with this more than others, and truly, I get this. I'm an eight on the Enneagram. There's a lot of fight in me, and so there are times where I'm like, no, 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 we need to stand up and fight. Come on, let's go. I mean, we gotta put those, these people in their place. We need to show them that they're wrong, especially if they're being stupid. I think of all the language in the New Testament, like take your stand, come on, stand firm. Don't be tossed around like a wave, resist. Speak boldly, speak confidently. I'm like, yeah, let's go. And then <laughs> I take just a moment to assess the times in my life where I defended my faith in such a way by speaking harshly, by showing people that they were wrong, by trying to prove my point. And at times, if I'm being honest, throwing spears 
by using very intentional words that I knew would cut. And I take a moment to assess how many times did that approach actually deliver positive results and the tally up to this day is zero. Can I be clear about something? We either believe that God is going to do what he said he was going to do or we don't. And so if you are potentially even flirting with what I'm calling this morning enemy-centric Christianity, I would tell you, maybe unintentionally, what you're saying is, I don't believe God will do what he said he's going to do. And so if I don't believe God will do what he said he's going to do, then I'll take matters into my own hands and I'll retaliate. Let me also be clear about this, that pursuing peace with all people does not mean that we negate our need to stand firm in our convictions. It does not mean that. Pursuing peace does not mean that we need to be passive and just roll over and allow people to to pummel us and walk all over us. It doesn't mean that. Pursuing peace with everyone, listen to me, pursuing peace with everyone is potentially the greatest way that we can keep love sincere. Because if our love, again, that we're supposed to be reflecting as an image of our heavenly father, if our love is not sincere, that an outside unbelieving world sees that our gig is up. Our gig is up. Before you jump to that verse really quick, uh, let me say this. Here's something I want more Christians to wrestle with. I feel like we've gotten too comfortable with the sin in our life. And I talked about this a little bit last week when I was talking about truth and grace, but listen to me. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are supposed to wage war against sin. And the Bible clearly communicates that we are supposed to pursue holiness. Now, if you don't have a good grasp of both truth and grace, then you're gonna miss this. So let me just quickly unveil this. On one hand, we can think to ourselves, well, I'll never be holy. I mean, the Bible specifically said, Jesus specifically says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Already failed at that one, like at 8.30 this morning even, you know. And so what we do is where it's like, well, that's not gonna happen. And so we just start to kind of, you know, start to dismiss a little bit, make, make some concessions. And it's like, well, you know, I don't know how serious I was supposed to take that, but listen to me. Here's the beauty of God's grace. The truth is that we're supposed to pursue holiness. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The truth is we're gonna fail at that every day, but it should never stop our pursuit of holiness. Because the more that we pursue holiness, guess what we're doing? We're reflecting a more accurate image of our heavenly father. And that outside unbelieving world that's looking in, that's just keeping their own tally, of how this is going down, oh yeah, 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 oh yeah, God is love, yeah, show me, show me how that could be love. So yes, we're gonna fail at it, that's the beauty of grace, and the beauty of grace is that you don't have to walk with any shame, Jesus took all that shame to the cross with him. So when you don't, when you don't live perfectly and you make those mistakes, you don't have to walk with any shame, you have been forgiven by the grace of God, thank you Jesus. But on the other hand, we still keep pursuing holiness. That's our target, be perfect, as your heavenly father is perfect. Not because Jesus is trying to get you to achieve some measure before he gives you eternal life. It's because in our pursuit of holiness and perfection as our heavenly father is perfect, we are reflecting, we are becoming more accurate image bearers of our father in heaven. Romans 12, love must be sincere. It must be sincere. Why? Because if it's not, 
man, good luck trying to convince an outside unbelieving world that anything that we're doing in here is any different than what they are experiencing out there. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, I wanna show you something because I think Paul chose these words incredibly careful because I want you to notice what Paul didn't say here. He didn't say hate who is evil, did he? When you follow enemy-centric Christianity, when you follow an enemy-centric Jesus, we often unintentionally, or maybe even intentionally, we replace this word what with who, and we start to hate who we have claimed is evil. Enemy-centric Christianity needs a target. And so it's easier when we can label a person as a target to hurl our insults at, our hostility at, at times even hatred at, And so while we're posting toxic things on social media and giving people a piece of our minds, an outside unbelieving world is sitting back and they're watching while at the same time deepening their resolve, deepening their resolve of why they will never be a part of anything like this. I don't know about you, but I'm not okay with that. So let me say it again. We either have confidence that God is going to do exactly what he said he's going to do or we don't. And if we don't, we will probably start following a cheap imitation of Jesus and it very well could be this enemy-centric Jesus. Peter potentially got the most observations of the ministry of Jesus. So, you know, Peter gets introduced to Jesus as he's uh, starting his ministry. So he was with him for about three years and I would make the case that Peter got to have the the most observations of how Jesus did things. And even the night that he was arrested and he was taken away and they began to beat him, you know, Peter, even though he's still a little cowardice, he was still positioning himself to see what was happening to the leader and Lord of his life. And he was observing all this take place. We don't know this for sure, but I would suggest to you that Peter was somewhere in the shadows watching the crucifixion take place. And maybe one of the most interesting assessments and observations that Peter ever made is actually re- recorded in one of Peter's letters. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this, and I just want to go slow. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, and make no mistake, he suffered. A Roman crucifixion was designed for torture. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Because Jesus knew God will do what he said he's going to do. It's not my job to retaliate, it's my job to be faithful. The posture of Jesus, even when under heavy persecution, was to submit to the Father in heaven. Father, I have done what you have asked me to do, and so the rest is up to you. Maybe that's a great mantra to live by. God, I have done what you've asked me to do, and the rest is up to you. I would suggest to you this morning that one of the most simplest yet effective approaches of our faith is this right here. Obey God and then leave the consequences to him. 
obey God and leave the consequences to him. Church, we either believe that God's going to do what he said he's going to do, or we don't. And so you, if you have potentially today, maybe through something that I've said, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if you've potentially today arrived at a conclusion that shows you that you have potentially been following an enemy-centric Jesus or you have been caught up in enemy-centric Christianity, can I encourage you, especially we're getting ready to go into a time of response, can I encourage you to invite God to dismantle that? Can I encourage you to invite God today to dismantle that? Because there's only one true Jesus. And he tells us, as far as it's up to us, be at peace with everyone. Not because I'm preaching a gospel of passivity. You have the ability to change somebody's perspective. Let me pray for us. God, uh, we... We get this wrong, I think, oftentimes unintentionally. Sometimes it's because we've not been taught correctly. Sometimes it's because we got caught up in the wrong crowd. Sometimes it's because it's just easier. And so, uh, Father, today as we respond to what's been said and we respond to your word that I think is crystal clear on the subject, I don't think there's any room for subjectivity on this. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to start following the one true Jesus again. That we would invite you to dismantle any false images of Jesus that we have potentially bought. And so, as I ask every week, God, sometimes this takes a little bit more soul work and so we're gonna need your help. We're gonna need the power of your Holy Spirit to search us, to help us to take assessment of what's really happening behind the scenes in our life and how we are, are approaching our faith maybe how we are reflecting and being image bearers of our Father in heaven and and we just need help. God, I pray that you would reveal what needs to be revealed today. You'll dismantle what needs to be dismantled today and that all of us would leave here feeling a little bit more confident that we're following the one true Jesus because he is enough, he's enough. We don't need to change anything about him, he's enough. We pray this in his name. Amen.